This show is made possible entirely by the support of listeners just like you. For details on all the ways to support the show, visit bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Progressive, The Colbert Report, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, The Daily Show, On the Media, The Young Turks, and Bill Moyers Journal. With a bonus video clip today for our iPhone app users from Rachel Maddow. Lots to come this hour, but we begin with President Obama fresh off negotiating a new global agreement on nuclear terrorism with 49 leaders from around the world, pivoting now to a much tougher crowd and probably a much steeper diplomatic challenge. All right, hello everybody. Uh, I, I want to welcome uh, congressional leaders uh, to uh, one of our periodic meetings. It's a meeting with world leaders to prevent nuclear terrorism. Child's play. Meeting with congressional leaders here to pass laws in America with giant Democratic majorities and the president's a Democrat? Yeah, good luck with that. Today, President Obama welcomed Republicans to the White House today uh, for a big bipartisan talk on Wall Street reform. Wall Street reform, of course, has already passed the House. It's already passed the first committee in the Senate. It is on its way toward passing. The only questions now are when it's going to pass and with how much Republican support. Coming out of today's meeting at the White House, uh, Mitch McConnell and John Boehner, the top Republicans in Congress, they affirmed that on this issue, they really meant that whole not just the party of no thing. Um, I think at this point they are debuting the party of hell no thing. Uh, the American people are uh, continuing to ask the question, where are the jobs? And when you look at this uh, financial services bill, uh, my concern, uh, is that it's going to protect uh, the biggest banks in America and harm the smallest banks. It's a bill that uh, actually guarantees future uh, bailouts of Wall Street banks. In, in fact, if you look at it carefully, it will lead to endless taxpayer bailouts of Wall Street banks. That is clearly not the direction the American people would like for us to go, and also not the direction uh, Senate Republicans would like to go. So according to Mitch McConnell there, uh, this reform bill will lead to endless taxpayer bailouts of Wall Street. That's what he said, endless taxpayer bailouts of Wall Street. Uh, what it really does is not that. If the Dodd bill becomes law, big banks have to pay into a bailout insurance fund, essentially. So banks have to pay for bailouts in the future, not taxpayers. The bill that passed the House includes an even bigger pool that banks have to pay into. But the whole idea is that if banks need bailing out, banks themselves do the bailing out now, not us. That's the whole idea. In the Senate bill, the FDIC actually dismantles banks that fail. They sell off their various pieces instead of just propping up the giant existing banks with, with taxpayer money like we did last time. Now, you, you may not like this bill. There may be all sorts of reasons to object to it, but endless taxpayer bailouts? Endless taxpayer bailouts. Yeah, th yeah, that's not true. That's not there. Uh, it's not surprising that Republicans are opposed to Wall Street reform. No Republicans voted for it at all when it passed the House. Uh, the Republican Party has pursued this unified strategy of saying no to everything in Congress while they're in the minority. It is not surprising they're against Wall Street reform. It is interesting, though, that they're explaining why they're against Wall Street reform by railing against something that's not at all recognizable in the bill in any way. Where do they get this stuff? Actually, we know where they're getting this stuff. You might remember back in February, we reported on a memo obtained by Sam Stein at the Huffington Post. It was a 17-page memo of suggested talking points for Republicans written by Republican pollster Frank Luntz. The memo advised Republicans how to not only kill Wall Street reform, but to gain the biggest possible political advantage from killing it. Uh, for example, in a, in a section that's titled Words to Use, Mr. Luntz recommends that Republicans include never again, never again in their anti-Wall Street reform speechifying. Never again, never again should taxpayers be expected to bail out Wall Street from its own mistakes. Well done. Check. Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Back to the talking points here. Uh, quote, frankly, the single best way to kill any legislation is to link it to the big bank bailout. Over to you. 
We cannot allow endless taxpayer-funded bailouts for big Wall Street banks. We'll guarantee a perpetual taxpayer bailout of Wall Street banks. It will lead to endless taxpayer bailouts of Wall Street banks. It provides an endless opportunity for taxpayer bailouts of Wall Street banks. And this bill, make no mistake about it, is a permanent taxpayer bailout of Wall Street banks. Go, man, go. You are so on point. I don't know if you'd call us at this point like a choir or a, a chorus. I was never all that clear on the differences between them. But all together, you guys sound great. Another talking point from the memo is this, quote, uh, taxpayers should not be held responsible for the failure of big business any longer. If a business is gonna fail, not, no matter how big, let it fail. We won't solve this problem until the biggest banks are allowed to fail. Never mind, that's precisely what the Democrats are proposing too. Mitch McConnell, make some hay here. I know you can do it. It does take a little bit of the suspense out of this, but if you want to read for yourself the script that Republicans are reading from when they say Wall Street shouldn't be reformed, uh, the script was leaked two months ago, uh, and we have posted it on the Maddow blog today. You can follow along in the day's news as long as this is going to be debated. If you look at the client list of the author of that memo, I'm sure that the big Wall Street firms among those clients are delighted to see that the script is being followed uh, with such attention to detail. The talking points are well-crafted, they sound great, they are totally disconnected from the facts. But hey, in health reform, you know, you don't think the people who invented the whole death panels idea thought that was real, do you? Reality is not exactly how this stuff works. You tell me lies, lies, lies Sweet little lies When I can't unbear the truth Tell me lies, lies, lies Sweet little lies Help me make them all come true Tell me that the rain won't fall today Tell me that the tax man lost his way Talk about cognitive dissonance. Hearing Republicans denounce Wall Street bailouts and lobbyists makes my head spin, since the Republican Party loves corporate welfare and sides with business every time. Actually, they're siding with business again, even as they rhetorically denounce bailouts, because what they really don't want is the financial reform bill that President Obama is pushing, since it would increase regulation on Wall Street. Their cries against Wall Street are just diversions, diversions orchestrated by Republican pollster Frank Luntz, as my colleague Ruth Conniff clearly shows in the latest issue of The Progressive. In a memo to his Republican clients, Luntz wrote, the single best way to kill any legislation is to link it to the big bank bailout. So this week, that's what Mitch McConnell was doing. He went onto the floor of the Senate to say, no more bailouts for Wall Street banks. So let's keep score here. McConnell voted for the first bank bailout, which was passed under President Bush. The current bill that he's opposing with this newly minted rhetoric actually wouldn't bail out the banks, but it would increase regulation of them. That's why the banks themselves oppose the bill, and that's really why McConnell opposes the bill. This year's Orwell Award should go to Mitch McConnell, and he can share it with Frank Luntz. This Because America is back. Look, it says so right here on the cover of Newsweek. America's back. Yes, sir. The magazine industry, however, still dead. I just love this cover. Look at it. It is so bold. Look at these stripes. 
It's like a close-up of Uncle Sam's crotch. <laughs> saying, suck it, learning humility from the recent economic catastrophe. <laughs> I mean, it was only a year ago that I didn't bother to understand what was happening, and now it's over. <laughs> the signs of our recovery are everywhere, folks. Our biggest industries are profitable, consumer spending is way up, and unemployment is way down. <laughs> and there's more evidence. Yesterday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed above 11,000 for the first time since September 2008. Yeah. USA! 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 Now, folks, I don't have to tell you what it means when the Dow hits 11,000, which is good, because I don't know what it means. <laughs> All that matters is that it hit 11,000. 11,000 Dows? <laughs> Dalmatians? Moist Dowlets? Whatever. According to some guy named William J. Schultz, nobody ever thought we'd ever get near this level this fast. We've come a long way. We sure have, Schultz. And my financial advisor, Gorlock, <laughs> has assured me that unlike previous bubbles, this time, the Dow will continue to rise indefinitely. He said... <laughs> Gorlock called me up the other day. He said, we should just relax and fatten up. <laughs> it's all in his new book, To Serve the Investor. But teach me, baby. Should I fence in my heart, baby? Lord, keep it in the shade. Events on Capitol Hill this afternoon suggesting the party of no has a plan B when the country just will not take no for an answer. The party will instead take credit for the yes. Our fifth story, Republican leadership saying that a bipartisan agreement on Wall Street reform is within reach, congratulating themselves for a breakthrough in negotiations. But the Democrats point man on negotiations this afternoon, likening both sides to a couple of petulant teenagers in a barn burner of a speech, much of which we will show you in a moment. Minority leader McConnell appearing to have done a 180 this afternoon, suggesting that his top negotiator, Richard Shelby of Alabama, believes an agreement could be struck with Democrats on a Wall Street reform bill sooner rather than later, while credit his veiled filibuster threat as having broken an apparent impasse. Serious discussions have resumed. I think the uh, 41 letter last week indicating that Republicans wanted to see serious negotiations occur rather than just political sparring has it worked, at least for the short term. And uh, we're hopeful that uh, Democrats and Republicans on the Banking Committee, plus those involved on the Agriculture Committee, on the derivatives uh, piece, can come together and give us a bipartisan, a truly bipartisan bill that we can move across the floor of the Senate. Majority Leader Reid's office today dismissing Senator McConnell's claim that it was his letter which restarted negotiations. The statement reading in part, quote, really, Senator? Are you sure it isn't the blistering criticism you're receiving from your closed-door meetings with Wall Street executives or that even members of your own party aren't buying your message? That, an obvious reference to Republican Bob Corker of Tennessee seeming to be of two minds, on the one hand accusing his party of misrepresenting the Democrats' bill, as well as of having moved the goalposts on financial reform. On the other, Senator Corker apparently having again sipped the GOP Kool-Aid, saying this morning that the Democrats' legislation does not do enough. Quoting the senator, this bill is anything but tough on Wall Street. There is nothing in this bill that's tough on Wall Street. Corker and other Republicans also defending their friends on Wall Street, openly questioning the timing of the prosecution of Goldman Sachs. This whole Goldman Sachs thing, isn't that a little odd that all of a sudden, right at the height of this legislative period, we suddenly have the SEC and uh, filing suit against Goldman Sachs? You think the timing, you think yeah, the think timing the of those charges is... Suspect. is 
It's very suspect. Secondly, think about it. Goldman Sachs on the deals that they're talking about was dealing with the most sophisticated people in the business. You know, there's something terribly wrong here, and I don't know what it is. But to do that right at this particular time, yeah, the timing is very suspect in my eyes. You notice the Fox guy's script was obviously marked wrong. White House Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel himself having met with Wall Street executives this past Sunday night in the Washington Post reporting that Mr. Emanuel met privately with some of the city's top investors, warning them that the administration supports tough new rules. And as promised, here's what happened on the Senate floor this afternoon. The author of the Democrats' bill, Banking Committee Chairman Dodd of Connecticut, painting a bleak picture of where things stand with the opposition, which conflicts entirely with the minority leader's assessment of where those negotiations are. The letter from the minority leader that said, we've got 41 votes here to stop you from even debating this bill. Will you explain that to the American taxpayer, to the small business, to the American family, and to others out there who are paying an awful price because of the mess that these very institutions who are today leading the charge against us getting to a bill, explain to them why the status quo is in their interest and their benefit. Mr. President, those who vote to block this bill will be sending a clear message to American families, businesses, community bankers, and taxpayers. And that message will be, I'm sorry, but we're not on your side. We're choosing another side of this equation. The memo that suggested this game plan, written by the political strategist, was written long before even one word was written on the bill. They were told how to fight the bill that didn't even exist out here by accusing the bill of leaving open the too big to fail, even though they knew, at least those who'd read the bill, that those provisions had been written so tight that no one could possibly argue that too big to fail would ever be allowed again under the bill that we've written. And the Republican leadership returned promising that every member of their caucus would vote to kill this bill before the debate even began. I have never, ever passed a major piece of legislation in this body almost over three decades when I have not had the cooperation and backing of a member or members on the other side of the aisle, never once. On every major piece of legislation I've been involved in. And here we are on the brink of going forward with the largest, or the single largest proposal to reform the financial service sector of our country. And we're divided uh, here like a couple of petulant teenagers. Instead of sitting around and coming together as I've offered for months uh, to get behind a bill and allow us to go forward. It's long overdue that we grow up and recognize this isn't some you know, athletic contest. This is about whether or not our economy can get back on its feet, whether or not we can grow and prosper and create jobs, have credit flow and capital form so that businesses and wealth can be created. And nothing less than that is at stake in this debate and discussion. And all the more reason why we need to go forward. And to go forward like adults, like members of the greatest deliberative body, we are told over and over again in the history of mankind, the United States Senate, to resolve these matters. Now, I've worked for hours with my colleague from Alabama, as he well knows, Senator Shelby, to the point that he has said, and I commend him for it, and I appreciate it very much, that we are 80 percent of the way to a bipartisan consensus. In fact, I suspect that if Richard Shelby were asked today whether that number was 80 percent, I suspect he'd even have a higher number. Well, imagine being between 80 and 90 percent in agreement, and yet we're being told by the minority we can't go forward. Do I let you write the whole bill? Is that when we can go forward? You got, you got 80 or 90 percent of what you think is a good bill, but no, no, we're going to stop any further debate. In all my years, I've never heard of such an argument, uh, whether I've been in the minority or the majority, that I agree with 80 or 90 percent of what you've written, Senator, but I'm sorry. We're going to have to stop even considering any further debate on the floor of the United States Senate. I've worked for many hours with the Senator from Tennessee, Bob Corker to try to get to 100%, as he well knows. No matter what was said in the meetings between the Republican leadership and Wall Street executives, the fact is that the bill that I'll be bringing to the floor reflects not only a bipartisan input, but good common sense as well.
Hi there, it's Mike. Here's another unsolicited moment for the podcast listeners. Some things have changed since I sent my first message to Jay. The main change? More podcasts. Ten a month. And there's the iPod apps, the bonus clips divided into different categories for the subscribers. And now Jay has made this podcast his full-time job. Plus, Jay won the Best Produced Podcast of the Year Award. By using the Amazon link on the Best of the Left podcast site, you can contribute with every purchase you make at reduced prices on just about every Thing. At Amazon, you can buy music, downloads, furnish your apartments, fill up your cupboards with linens, foods, computer supplies, appliances, and on and on and on. Not just the Amazon DVDs and books. In fact, it's hard to name anything that you can't buy at Amazon. And you're contributing at the same time without paying a penny more. Now, my Social Security retirement check doesn't allow for much shopping, but I still manage to make sure Jay has my $5 subscription month after month. It's great to know that even on a meager income, I'm making a big difference in our world, keeping the Best of the Left podcast going and growing and ensuring progressive concepts are introduced, heard, and passed on. I'm proud to be a part of that, and you will be too. Do your part. Do what you can. Thanks. If you're like me, you think that when you deposit money in a bank, the bank takes that money and puts it in a mattress with your name on it <laughs> and has a fat guy sleep on top of the mattress so that nobody can take it. It's not true. It turns out when you give your money to a bank, uh, what they uh, do with it is uh, anything they want. <laughs> and if they lose it, perhaps gambling on bigger, dumber banks, <laughs> they replenish the money you originally gave them with... Uh, M more of your money. <laughs> you know why? Because Claude Rowe is right. The worker man is a sucker. <laughs> by, by the way, tickets are still available for a moment on that show. John Stewart paraphrases a Bronx Tale after seeing it twice 15 years ago. <laughs> now, there it's a terrific show, by the way. You've got to see it. There has been. You know what is the worst part about that joke? That is not a photoshopped picture. <laughs> That's me. Now, there's been one unforeseen benefit of our financial collapse. It's been the only issue that's been able to unite both Democrats and Republicans. Richard and I are going to get this bill on financial reform with our colleagues. Republicans would like to see a bipartisan bill. This is not about politics. This is about trying to protect people's pocketbooks. Republicans believe that we need financial reform. We all agree, both sides of the aisle, that we need financial reform. My God! <laughs> it's the appearance of the rare and nearly extinct... Elefunky. <laughs> what an aberration the animal is. An abomination unto the Lord, I say. Finally, we can move forward with at least the debate on financial reform. Senate Republicans voted last night against moving forward with debate on the massive financial reform bill. The elephant is a genetic monstrosity whose every moment of existence is unbearable agony. <laughs> so the Senate's legislative arm may lay flaccid, but its grandstandy, <laughs> but its grandstandy hearing arm still works. I give you the return of Goldman Sachs, the reharanganing. Called to account in today's episode, Goldman Chairman Lloyd Blankfein and six of his top employees, including this guy. <laughs> His name is Fabrice Torre. He is the only Goldman Sachs employee named in the SEC's lawsuit against the firm. Referring to himself as the fabulous fab. Ah. <laughs> I see he's already picked out his prison nickname. <laughs> now, fab is accused... Fab is accused of knowingly peddling crap products designed to fail the Goldman Sachs clients while profiting from backdoor short bets that these crappy products would in fact fail. Is it true? I don't know. But the emails he sent to his girlfriends, plural, <laughs> didn't help. Bragged Fab 
that even though the entire system is about to crumble at any moment, he was still selling, quote, widows and orphans that he ran into at the airport, financial products he had created that were, quote, pure intellectual masturbation, which nobody knows how to price. <laughs> Are times so tough, ladies, that he's really got girlfriends, plural? <laughs> All the guys I meet are either dicks or ass <laughs> Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein, what does he offer as Fab's excuse? Blankfein is prepared, if asked, if asked about his uh, opinion about Mr. Toreif, the fabulous Fab Toreif. He's prepared to say that he's immature and showed poor judgment. Yeah. I don't know that hard-selling widows, products that are bound to crush them financially, is necessarily considered immature. I, I tend to think of that word more when you're looking at a book about birds and you laugh because you see the word titmouse. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> Sorry. So in the emails, Goldman literally admitted they were selling a, quote, deal to their clients. <laughs> well, how will our nation's most deliberative body, this August assemblage of wizened legislators, our Senate, respond to such coarse missives? He was telling you on June 22, boy, that Timberwolf was one deal. You're trying to sell a deal. That deal. This is the same one that your folks called Should Goldman Sachs be trying to sell a deal? Well... Can you answer Again, that one? Can words, you answer but... that one, yes or no? <laughs> Looks like, uh... Mm. Wow. Mm. Looks like uh, Senators McCaskill and Levin are driving the potty bus to <laughs> town. <laughs> Feels pretty good, doesn't it? See, that's the beauty of our financial meltdown. Even with the legislative body that can actually impact the financial crisis paralyzed by partisan politics, we can still all come together and express good old-fashioned impotent rage. Do you think if your people think something is a piece of crap and go out and sell that? Subprime loans where the basis for income for the borrower is what they say their income is. You're playing in the market and mucking it up. If you don't want to answer my questions, you don't have to. You think it's so complicated and you think you're so smart? We're not that stupid. You think you're so smart? <laughs> you think you can jet down here in your golden flying carriages for half a day and sit for a couple of hours through some perfunctory scolding and then head back to your lavish Westchester estates with your panic rooms and your fancy supermodel <laughs> job factories? <laughs> While we spend every free moment kissing the asses of any wrinkled constituent with $20 and a working landline. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying to you, sir, is, are you hiring? <laughs> but here's the thing, Congress. Here's the thing, Congress. You got an industry with a pervasive culture of greed and purposeful exploitation of whatever legal loopholes the best loophole-looking legal minds can locate. <laughs> They're laying prostrate right in front of you, and the best you can come up with is judgment. <laughs> Guess what? They're smarter than you.
On Tuesday, executives from Goldman Sachs confronted a gang of angry senators. Lawmakers interrogated the execs for 10 televised hours about whether their firm had made bets against the collapsing mortgage industry while simultaneously convincing their clients to keep investing in it. The truth of whether they swindled their clients or just hedged their bets will take time and expertise to unearth. The Securities and Exchange Commission investigation is currently underway, which makes Tuesday hearing a curious affair. Was it a teachable moment for viewers or mere theater? Megan McArdle is the business and economics editor for The Atlantic magazine. She blogged about the hearing at theatlantic.com. Megan, welcome to On the Media. Thanks so much for having me. So did the senator's questions elicit any new information? Not really. Mostly this is an opportunity for senators to look very angry at bankers, which is something that they need going into the election. Carl Levin's eyes practically popped out of his head more than once as he yelled at the bankers and told them that they were bad people. And the bankers sat there and took it, mostly for their own theater. They want the public to think they've been chastened. Senator Levin definitely got most of the headlines for one clip that we've pulled. He's berating a Goldman employee about an email where he described the mortgage deals as excremental. Look what your sales team was saying about Timberwolf. Boy, that Timberwolf was one sh** deal. This was an email to me in late June. Right. You sold Timberwolf after as well. We did trades after that. Yeah, okay. And the trades after... Some context might be helpful. The context, let me tell you, the context is mighty clear. Carl Levin has found an incredibly incriminating quote. So what the guy he was questioning was arguing was, I don't know whether truthfully or not, they had sold it after the date of the email. They had probably sold it at a discount. So a deal that's a bad deal can still be sold. Take Greek debt. Greek debt is not a good investment. You might even say it's excremental. (laughs) But if I could buy Greek debt for 10 cents on every dollar of face value of that debt, that would probably be a good investment because at some point Greece is going to make good on at least some of the debt and I will get more than my money back. If you didn't learn anything about the actual substance of the matter, did you learn anything about the Goldman execs? What I learned about the Goldman execs is that they are still extremely bad at managing their public image. They would get involved in lengthy arguments that just made them look like they were dodging the question. You actually believe that most people would be better off just not watching these hearings? I think so. For the people in the financial press, and to a lesser extent the people in the political press, it's useful to watch these things because you can kind of see what the players are doing, how they're positioning themselves for their next move. But it doesn't actually pull out that much new information. And when there is information given, it's actually pretty hard to follow because there's no one there explaining what a short sale is, what a long position is, what a synthetic CDO is. And if you don't already know those terms pretty well, then you're basically just going to be left to choose sides based on who seems more personable in front of the camera. And I have to say, after watching this for 10 hours, I would have to say none of them. Well, let's talk about the theater then. Isn't there a role for that in politics? Did it give a viewer a measure of satisfaction just to see these guys squirm? Absolutely. But that said, I think it's kind of dangerous in two ways. First of all, because it gives people the illusion of understanding what happened. Because the senators control the questioning, they can craft a sort of narrative that doesn't really have much to do with figuring out what went wrong and has a lot to do with what the senator would like to see playing on his or her local news. They'd probably get more answers if they weren't putting these guys in front of the camera. If not these hearings, then what? I mean, people care about this. You know, during the Watergate hearings, there was, uh, you know, a great deal of theater. But in the Watergate hearings, there were matters of fact that were comprehensible to the general public, which these issues just aren't. It gives people, as I say, the illusion that they understand what's going on, and it gives them a certain amount of schadenfreude. But I think that there are other ways that that could be achieved. For example, by actually passing some financial regulation. (laughs) And it's not clear to me whether having gotten on television yelling at Goldman bankers 
doesn't make people a little less interested in doing financial reform, right? Because now they don't have to in order to get reelected. They've gotten themselves out there as on record as being really, really mean to bankers. The theater could be a substitute for action. Exactly. The Republicans have filibustered financial reform. So they did it. Yeah, we had our first vote today, and they blocked it. Before they, you know, they were bluffing, they were sent a letter where they said, oh, no, you don't understand, we're really going to do it. Today, we actually had a vote, and they blocked it. Oh, Republicans, I have three words for you. Have, no, wait a minute. I believe that's four words. <laughs> have at it, Hoss. <laughs> okay. Oh, please, 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 please make my day. No, I want you to keep filibustering this. <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, it's going to be awesome. So what they're going to do is keep on filibustering to protect Wall Street. Oh, oh thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Make my day. A new poll out today with the most obvious facts of all time, even for guys like me who can't count. 65% <laughs> of Americans say that uh, they are for tough financial reform, to which I say, of course, of course they are. What kind of idiot uh, would say, no, 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 let, let the uh, banks go wild again and let them crash the economy so we could all lose our jobs? Who would say that? I mean, look, you have to understand 65 percent is a gigantic number because 25 percent of the country is not convincible. They are ditto heads. They, they just listen to Rush Limbaugh, you know, Fox News Channel and the right wing preacher, right? So those guys, you can never convince of anything. If Rush Limbaugh tells those guys, hey, you know what, uh, you should get punched in the face. They'd be like, mm, okay, I guess so. Uh, who should I get punched by, Rush? Oh, uh, well, find the richest man in your town. I'm going to punch you in the face. And they'll go, okay, all right, I'm in. So forget 25% of the country. You're never going to get through that, right? So out of the remaining 75%, 65% say, should we have financial reform that's strong? Absolutely. So now the Republicans are going to stand in the way of that. You're standing in the way of a bulldozer. So good luck to you. It's a terrible idea. Now, okay, here we go. This is the main question. What will the Democrats do in response? They have two choices, and that is what they're trying to decide right now. One is to stand strong and say, hey, you know what? We're not going to get pushed around by these guys. We're going to come in with an even stronger bill. That would be awesome. Okay. The second option is, can you guess? Oh, yeah. Knees, buckle. Cave in and say, oh, yeah, look, you know what? We took out this and we took out that and we made a deal with the Republicans and we're all bipartisan and we're going to play, you know, ass slap football now and everybody's going to be happy about this. So if they come out with something bipartisan and you read that in the news tomorrow, that means they caved. That means they made the bill weaker, not stronger. Because right now they buried the Consumer Financial Protection Agency inside the Fed. Even Alan Greenspan says the Fed has really no enforcement power. It's wasted there. Now the Republicans want to make that even weaker and say they're not allowed to have any independent rules. Then why do they exist? What's their point of existence? See, the Republicans have been trying to gut that agency because they don't want to protect the consumers. They want to protect the bankers. So if you make a deal with them, the bankers get stronger and all of our money is at risk. Okay? Now, here's the good news. The possibility that they might actually it gets stronger is real. The people, according to the press and the inside sources, the people that are uh, fighting to eat the stronger are uh, Barney Frank in the House saying, hey, look, the House passed a stronger version. We want the Senate to be as strong as possible. And are you ready for this? I hope you're sitting. 
Barack Obama. <laughs> Can you believe that? Do you believe in miracles? The Obama administration is saying, no, no loopholes, no weakening. We're going to, uh, I want this bill just as it is now, and we're not going to cave into the Republicans. Now, boy, would that be a, a sight for uh, sore eyes. Is that, is that the saying? I believe it is. So the, that would be fantastic. Now, also, the same press report saying there is one guy who is an ally of the Republicans in the Senate and who's actually been trying to make this bill weaker all along. And he's the one inside the administration pushing to uh, concede more and more to the Republicans. In fact, he stands to the right of Republicans. He's a little more pro-banker than they are. The only guy in government they could find more pro-banker than the Republicans in the Senate. Anybody want to tender a guess as to who it is? You got it. Timmy Geithner. <laughs> Unreal, man. I, I don't know why we would expect anything different. But the great news is, for the moment being, it looks like Obama is overruling Geithner. You know, that's the way it's supposed to work. He is the president. He's above it. I'm walking down the southern street. to the river for a run to low. I'm walking down the southern street. to the river for a run to low. Consumer Protection Agency. Great. Now our credit cards need to wear condoms. Please welcome Elizabeth Warren. Hey, Ms. Warren, thank you so much for coming on. I'm looking forward to talking to you for a long time. Now, now, madam, you, uh, you've, uh, held a, a, a vaunted position in American uh, politics and finance, okay? You have been chair of the Congressional Oversight Panel that, 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 that basically looks over the shoulder of the TARP people to see how everything is being distributed. How did that go? Uh, well, we're still in the middle. How far, how far are we? Uh, the, the overall, the, we're about three quarters of the way through. And how much money is that? Uh, it started out as 700 billion. Uh, we expect we're going to get all of it back. Right now, we've got about 137 billion outstanding. So we've been paid back. We've been paid back much of it, not all of it. How much is how much? Uh, about 137 billion. About 137 billion out of over 700 billion. Well, it never all actually went out out of 700 billion that was allocated. Okay, so but still, do you expect to get the rest of the hundred and something billion back? Well, it kind of depends on things like uh, how the auto industry does because we're big. GM's paid now. everything back. They said with interest. You've seen the commercials, right? I I have. <laughs> they paid everything back. If that wasn't true. They couldn't run that commercial. That's the law, Madeline. Uh, um, we actually are big shareholders in GM and mm -hmm. hoping to sell our share to someone else mm -hmm. uh, as a way to get paid back. Uh, okay. So we're working on that. We're working on Chrysler. Uh, there's AIG. There's Citibank. Mm -hmm. And then there are a few other, a GMAC, a few other financial institutions that, not doing so well. You believe that we, there's a, there's a, uh, a banking and financial regulation bill that the Democrats want to jam down America's throat. And you're in favor of this bill, correct? I, I am in favor of a change in the financial rules. Okay, now, now the old financial rules gave us years of unbelievable boom. We just had a huge boom over the last 10 years, correct? Yeah, well, yeah. Except no, for the last two years. The yeah, last, except for that part. The first eight of the last 10 years. Pretty right. great, right? Well, right? not so much. Because, How so? Well, now we've sort of moved into what we might call the boom and bust cycle. And that works for some people. Some people get really rich Worked during that. Worked out great for me, baby. <laughs> It, it didn't work so well for a lot of middle-class American families. Unemployment, bankruptcy, foreclosures, uh, a down economy, flat wages, so rising So what do you want to do to the banks 
to, to hamstring them so they can't make profit? Well, the idea behind the regulation is to try to put some rules back on Wall Street and rein them in a little bit. So no free market? Uh, no, no, no. This is to support a free market. And it starts rules, on... Rules? You said rein in. That's right. A free horse has no reins on it. <laughs> okay, we're talking Mustangs. You want a gelded, you know, Clydesdale. Uh, well, what I want is a horse that works for all of us. I want a... Oh, the horse belongs to all of us. Uh, no. Comrade. I, I want a strong consumer agency to what would make they do? sure... What they would do is make sure that we can all read our credit card agreements. Can you read your credit card agreement? Not the ones we have now. They're about 30 pages long, tiny little print. You're, you're a professor of contract law at Harvard University. That's right. And you can't read them. That's right. It's designed not to be read. And you want to make me read mine. <laughs> no, I, I actually think we should change the contracts so that you could read yours. The idea is that everyone should have, we should have simple products that we can read, like two-page credit card agreements, two-page mortgage agreements. Explain yes. to a conservative why he should support curtailing the ability of banks to do anything they want. Well, because conservatives believe in markets, and the way markets work with contracts is that you understand it and I understand it. We decide to make contracts that are in both of our interests. So the idea is just to level the playing field here a little bit. You get to understand the contract, personal responsibility, make a decision if that's a contract you should take on. But if I'm the bank, don't I get to change the contract anytime I want? Well, that's one of the things that makes it not like real contract law. I, I believe I'm fine in contracts. you understanding the contract as long as I get to change that understanding without telling you. Well, that, Isn't that how it works now? Uh, and that's a problem. And that's working out for the banks. It's working out for the banks, but it's not working out so well for uh, millions and millions of American families. Now, the Democrats have this this uh, financial reform package. That's the right. Republicans have a financial reform package too. Let's let's hear about that one. Say a couple positive things about that. Well, um, so the idea behind the Republican Consumer Agency is that they will take the heads of all the agencies that failed and brought us to this economic crisis, yes. the folks who were asleep on the job and didn't protect consumers, yes. and they'll put them in a committee and put the committee in charge. <laughs> They know the lay of the land, though. They know. They do. You know, why do we need reform? Don't we? Or, why do we need to regulate the banks? Don't we have bank regulators now? There's something called bank regulators. I've heard that term bandied about. Why do we have to wear like? Why do we have to wear a belt with our suspenders? We already have one set no, of regulators. No, actually, right now we don't have any pants on. I, I mean, Saturday, a viewer stopped me in our local supermarket with a question. She'd seen several editions of the journal dealing with how big money constantly undermines the public interest. And she wanted to know, how do you keep reporting what's happening in Washington without totally losing heart? I'll try to answer that more fully next week on the final edition of the journal. For now, I'll just say that I owe what sanity that remains, what hope I have to acts of the imagination inspired by others. Think about what we learned from Václav Havel and Lech Walesa, when few people believed that nations in the Soviet orbit could free themselves from its heavy gravitational pull, they imagined a different Czechoslovakia, a different Poland. Think of Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu. When even our own American government was supporting apartheid in South Africa, they imagined something different. Abraham Lincoln imagined the end of slavery and the preservation of the Union. Theodore Roosevelt imagined victory over the money trust. His cousin Franklin imagined a new deal for people like my father. The philosopher and critic Theodore Adorno, after his own escape from Hitler's Germany, wrote this about the power of imagination. In the face of despair, he said, 
you must try to contemplate all things as they would present themselves from the standpoint of redemption. This is not romanticism. It's not even idealism. It's our power to imagine alternatives and to wake up every morning to try to do something to bring them about. This is one reason we've asked every guest on the journal to pause before they leave and share with us their vision of the future of the American dream. Here are just a few of their voices. Take heart. My American dream is about freedom from fear. It's about possibility and hope. My vision is for an America that is not colorblind, but rather an America that cares deeply for people of all colors. I want democracy. This country is about equality, and it's about everybody having a voice. The notion that a rising tide lifts all boats presupposes that you have a boat. In my American dream, everybody has a boat. Unless we take care of people's economic needs, we rob them of their private dreams. I want the American dream to embrace broken people, people who are suffering. I would like to see a country which feels safe inside itself, in part because it deals justly outside its borders. We can settle for no less than America being the force of good in the world. My understanding of the American dream is that this is a country where people have rights to equal opportunity, freedom, and justice for all. I think that the American dream is going to have to be based and fulfilled through collective action, and it's going to be one hell of a fight. show no I'm a big fan of televised financial advice there is a gravitas that comes along with being a broadcaster that I think enhances the trust between the investor and the advisor you know I've been looking to put some money on bank stocks but I'm a little nervous about their prospects giving this regulatory talk happening in Washington cue sage advice my understanding of the current talks is that the big banks are the winners not the losers you'll read that story in the paper 72 hours from now the big banks are about to get their way. That's what's going on behind the scenes. That's what people in Washington are telling me. The bill will be, I know this will shock you, a huge victory for J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and the other big banks. Yes, a huge victory. The press won't write that. I know better. You just heard it here first. Wow, that guy from the village people is right. <laughs> In 72 hours, everyone will know. If I get ahead of it and put all my money into Goldman Sachs now, I'll be a huge winner. So fuck you, Comedy Central. Fuck everybody that works here. I'm outie. Stu Beef is outie. Oh man, I'm gonna make a fortune. Unless there's something that that very confident man didn't foresee. The stocks are down triple digits, the biggest loss in more than two months. There is one story that matters. Driving the drop, Goldman Sachs. The SEC charging the bank with fraud. Oh! By the way, to make it worse, while he was giving that financial advice, this is what happened to the construction site he was supposed to be directing traffic for. <laughs> Yes, Mr. Kramer's inside sources were so good, they knew that the bank regulation was going to go their way and help the banks. But they didn't know that the bank was going to be charged with fraud. <laughs> you get the sense that Jim Kramer had been around in 1912, he'd be like, you're not going to hear this from anyone else, but my sources tell me the Titanic has the best buffet on the high seas. <laughs> Take it to the bank. And by the way, if you want to get to the dock faster, try the Hindenburg. <laughs> so now... We go to town. 
he wasn't telling you to invest in Goldman Sachs. He was just saying they're the big winners. So now we will attempt to figure out just what exactly is going on at Goldman Sachs, that the SEC is now charging them with fraud in our continuing Wall Street segment. These <laughs> guys. <laughs> so last Friday, the SEC charged Goldman with fraud. Can anyone in the media explain this complicated financial story to me? Let's treat Goldman Sachs as if it were a, an antique car dealer, an exotic car dealer. No. If I'm buying a meal from you, I want to know that the meal is actually nourishing for me when I give you money, that you're not selling me a poison meal and betting that I'm going to die. No. It's sort of like the Mets playing the Yankees, but the manager of the Mets gets to pick the Yankee lineup. What the <laughs> When you buy a used car, you, you want to buy one that is certified, right? So you buy the car and it breaks. They shouldn't have certified it as being certified it because it wasn't. My used car analogy, the, 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 do you think it explained to folks what was going on here? It killed time. Hey, I, I got an idea. Why don't you explain it uh, like your news shows and your audience had not suffered a traumatic brain injury. Here's what the SEC is charging, that Goldman worked with a prominent hedge fund, which handles largely unregulated investments for the wealthy, to create a package of risky subprime mortgages that was designed to fail. Thank you. That's terrible. <laughs> and here's the weird part. That's not the fraud. Goldman Sachs then labeled the bucket a good investment and sold the supposedly good investment to others, telling them the hedge fund also had invested. Underhanded, but still not the fraud. <laughs> Show me fraud. But Goldman Sachs did not tell other investors that the hedge fund helped pick the worst mortgages and was actually betting against the bucket. These guys. <laughs> Apparently, you are absolutely allowed to sell to an unsuspecting public securities that you vouch for as a good investment, yet have been designed and handpicked by a hedge fund to fail, all the while that hedge fund is allowed to bet against the very crappy thing that it created. As long as you mention somewhere in whatever ridiculously verbose and impenetrable prospectus that you offer that that hedge fund's participation was incurred, these Guys. Fraud or not, it highlights the incredibly dubious nature of the world of these synthetic financial derivative products. I wonder if there's a concurrent story that could help highlight just how out of touch these banks have become from regular investors. All this comes as we learn that Goldman Sachs will hand out some $5 billion in bonuses. For what? $5.4 billion in bonuses to your fraud division? Did, didn't, didn't you just give out bonuses? Goldman Sachs said today it paid out more than $16 billion in bonuses and compensation for 2009. That was January. It's only April. Was this their daylight savings time bonus? Groundhog didn't see its shadow bonus? Do you give that bonus to the bonus in January so that those other bonuses don't get lonely? Do you need to give bonuses because the money silos are filled to the brim? <laughs> well, at the very least, I guess it points out the need for comprehensive overhauls of a system these people clearly cannot police for themselves. Regulate these derivative markets. Who can disagree with that? Republicans aren't beating around the bush anymore. They say flat out they will filibuster new rules for the nation's financial system. GOP senators contend the legislation would lead to more bank bailouts. These guys. These guys. Why would you not? Why would you not even allow the legislation to come up for debate on the floor of the Senate? I called the president out the other day in the administration to do better and stop politicizing these issues. And when you have government interfering in, in, in businesses, small businesses' lives and just throwing like a, a one-size-fits-all approach just to score political points, it, it's sad. Yeah, that is sad. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want a one-size-fits-all approach to legislation just to score political points. I would hope that the Senate would, would start over 
and, and draft a, a, a climate change bill. We need to stop this terrible health care bill and start over. Push the reset button. Scrap this. Postpone this. We've got to slow this thing down. Start over. Scrap, scrap this plan. Start over. Please don't pass this bill. Who's got two thumbs and doesn't do Thanks for listening, everyone. Lots of little things to get to today. First of all, I just want to say for those of you who uh, you know, follow the show closely and, and stay caught up, I want to apologize for uh, falling ever so slightly behind schedule. I've, it's been a hectic uh, few days or week for me. Travel mishaps and, and various things colluded to, uh, to keep me from you know, working to, to stay on schedule. So although th- this uh, first week of May was uh, normally scheduled to be a two midweek episode week uh i'll just be uh, i'll be switching it around and catching the show up and so the second and third weeks will both have two midweek episodes so not to worry next i want to mention that uh as part of being a little uh, a little out of sorts and and not quite caught up with what i should be doing um it is a new month and i have yet to mention podcast alley i completely forgot about it for the may 1st episode now we're several days behind i want to really encourage you to head over uh just go to bestoftheleft.com and click on the link to podcast alley it'll take you right to the voting page it's incredibly easy and really helpful to keep the show in the top 10 list where it's visible to lots of new listeners who can find it so you can do that it takes about 30 seconds and it's really appreciated and now speaking of promotion, did you guys all hear the, the great new promo that listener Mike sent in? You know, again, totally unsolicited. Uh, I, you know, I just wanted to take a moment and thank him at the end of the show here for doing that. You know, it was a, a great, great job and, and very much appreciated that, uh, you know, anyone would take the time to help support the show in, in that way. And now, speaking of supporting shows, uh, I actually wanted to take a moment to support a fellow podcaster, a, uh, a colleague, if you will. I, I, I don't think I particularly have many political podcasting colleagues out there in the world, but this is one of them, Jack Clark from Blast the Right, and he, he sent over his, his promo, which is admittedly a little out of date. So have a listen to this, and I want to talk a bit about it afterwards. It kind of catapults the propaganda. In my line of work, you got to keep repeating things over and over and over again. You got to catapult the propaganda. Oh, really, George? Greetings. This is Jack Clark. Listen to me catapult some truth back at that SOB and his entire gang of right-wing thugs. My podcast is called Blast the Right. I use facts and logic to kick right-wing butt. We'll have interviews, listener phone calls, and knock-down drag-out debates with foaming-at-the-mouth right-wingers. Is there any other type? Search for Blast the Right in iTunes, Yahoo, Google. You'll find me. Check it out right now. Remember, Blast the Right. So there you go. That's the promo for Blast the Right. The easiest way to find the show is just by Googling Blast the Right and and you'll find it. And as he mentioned, it's also in iTunes. Now, just to give a little background, you know, I've been doing this show since January 2006. And of course, I discovered podcasts, you know, maybe a year before that. I was listening to podcasts for a long time before I started my own. And of course, when I first started listening to podcasts i looked for political podcasts and blast the right was the only one i found at the time back when there were you know you could count all of the podcasts in the world with you know maybe only using three digits like i don't know if there were a thousand podcasts available at that time and jack clark was out there uh fighting the good fight now you know this promo is obviously a a little out of date talking about the bush administration and also, it frankly doesn't do him justice at all. So right now, he's on a schedule of doing about a 30-minute show about every three weeks. So first of all, you know, it's worth checking out because it's such a small 
time commitment. And then secondly, he he does such a good job. It's like uh, it's like progressivism concentrate, you know, because he does such a short show uh, and only once every few weeks. He uh, he plans it out so well that each episode is like a course that you're taking. You know, he takes you step by step through an argument. And by the end, it's impossible to disagree with with his premise. And frankly, that is the reason why I haven't really clipped uh, segments from his show because it, it's like I feel like I'd want to clip the entire thing. And then, of course, you consider the fact that you know it's it's such a short show that if I were to clip from it, you know, I'd feel like I'm taking you know fifty percent of his entire workload and and. And taking it for myself, which you know, I try not to do. All the sources I use, I try to use you know really small portions so that I I don't feel like I'm just outright stealing their show and, and republishing it. So there you go. That's Blast the Right, quite literally, possibly the original progressive podcaster. Check that out. Now, finally, I just want to thank a couple of members who, of course, make the show possible. Mark C signed up for his monthly membership back on October 23rd. Huge thanks, Mark. And Melinda H. signed up uh, more recently on February 27th, but went ahead and signed up for a full year in advance, going uh, you know, above and beyond the regular membership level just to help support the show. So, so huge thanks to Melinda and Mark and all the members who make the show possible. As I'm very much in the habit of saying now, the show just couldn't be possible without the support of, of members and listeners like you, you know, even just doing things like shopping on Amazon through our link, you know, it doesn't cost you any more money, but it's actually turning out to help the show tremendously. I even got a tip from a, a listener a few days ago saying that they had just, uh, they had clicked through on my Amazon widget. And so it, it took them to the, the special, uh, you know, the, the link that indicates to Amazon that uh, it had been linked to through my website so that I would get, uh, you know, a, a portion of the commission. And then he just bookmarked that. So he has a link to Amazon, as many of you I'm sure do, in, in your uh, toolbar. And then every time he clicks his regular Amazon link the way he normally would, it's now clicking through uh, as though it's coming through my website. So that's uh, going to be huge help. Obviously, I, I certainly recommend you do that as well. It doesn't cost you anything and, and helps the show. So that is it for today. Please continue to support the show by telling everyone you know about it. To stay connected to the show between episodes or to help promote the show online, we are at facebook.com slash left and twitter.com slash left. For details on the show, including all the links to the sources and all the music used in this and every episode, check those out in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of the DC Beltway, my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month now, even if an occasional episode is slightly delayed. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought